3: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman Deep Dive, the podcast where we explore the ideas behind the news. This is our first episode in the new era of strong and stable government and everyone is very calm and confident
2: and not at all in a
3: blind panic.
1: Nothing has changed. Nothing has
2: changed. And what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party. Note they don't have an overall majority at this stage.
3: Theresa May is attempting to recover from what may be the most crushing victory in a British electoral history. At the time of recording, she hasn't resigned, but she has fired her advisors, who have in turn blamed everything on Larry, the Downing Street cat.
0: You keep looking over your shoulder just in case she comes out that door. What can you tell us so far? Actually, I was
3: looking. I don't know if you can see a much more interesting fight about to erupt, it seems, between Palmerston and Larry. Yes, Palmerston! Right, hang on. Jeremy Corbyn has confounded the critics by pulling off a defeat more glorious than anyone envisaged. Political pundits are explaining why they got this wrong and also how it confirms everything they've been saying all along. They're also frantically reading up on Northern Ireland, which it turns out did not disappear after everyone stopped paying attention to it. In today's show, we're going to be exploring the political philosophy of the moment, Corbynism, with the help of our special guest, Matt Zarb-Cousin. Before we start, I'd just like to ask you for your support in the forthcoming leadership campaign. When you get a few seconds, please give us a a rating on iTunes and leave a review. It really does make a difference. And please, please share this podcast with friends and enemies on social media. Thank you very much. As usual, I'm here with my co-host, Stuart Wood. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. How are you? I am very well. Still shell-shocked, um, and I expect to remain that way for uh, several months. Um, can you explain <laughs> Until to the me, next election, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> well, yeah, which... In, is, exactly. Several days. Um, what happened?
2: Well, um, what happened was something quite seismic, I think, not just a one-off. Because I think... I mean, I've been in political meetings for years in the Labour Party, where we've talked about campaigns, and... Um, When people raise questions, how are we going to get young people to vote? There's a kind of snigger that emerges around the room. People say, well, just, you know, they just never show up. Don't worry about that. Well, they're showing up now. Not only they're showing up, they think they changed the election. And that's going to be massively important next time round, too. But lots of other things happen, too. I think Theresa May had a spectacularly terrible campaign uh, with a spectacularly wrong pitch. And Jeremy Corbyn was both lucky and very, very smart He ended up being, you know, who'd have thought it, you might think, but he ended up being a natural home for returning greeny lefties in the city, as well as many more working class Labour people who defected to UK port and non-voting as well. Um, He ended up taking on people like me who said he should have taken a stand on Brexit, against Brexit, by being relatively silent about it, but still hoovering up Remain voters who thought the best way to stop Brexit was to vote for Labour rather than the Conservatives. Um, he was tough on immigration without talking about immigration, because by taking, the, taking a stand of not contesting Brexit, he effectively signaled that he'd be in favour of tougher immigration that comes from Brexit. So all these things came together for him. Plus, you have to say a campaign which reached out to people that aren't reached out to normally, incredibly savvy use of Facebook, social media, and organisations like Momentum that have been ridiculed by lots of people in the Labour Party and outside. So. Hats off to him. Now, he lost. Everyone lost this election and he didn't win. But I think sitting with the popcorn out, watching the daily implosion of Theresa May's new government is actually a pretty good place for Labour to be. So I don't think they'll be shedding too many tears about that at the moment. How did the Tories get so bad at politics? That's my question. I mean, how could you go into
3: an election with a manifesto like that. I mean, we we said it was pretty bad at the time, but now when you look at the analysis, when you look at YouGov's analysis, YouGov have the, the most sophisticated model. It turns out, you know, the, their amazing outlier prediction was, was the one that called this most critical. Yeah. The, the real hit in Tory support um, was right on the, manife- the Tory manifesto. Right. So, yep. so up until that point, looked like they were going to win. They had the projected a majority of of sixty seats on the YouGov model. Yeah. After the manifesto, boom. I mean, I mean, and how you go to an electorate without offering them anything um, except fox hunting? <laughs> you know, the things, the very things that made your brand poisonous in the first place, um, and with policies that haven't been thought through, that you immediately have to back down. They're undermining everything. I, I, well, they have one, a reputation for being a fearsome electoral machine, right, the last half century. They've been
2: in, in power more often than not. So I just don't understand how it came to this. Not anymore, they don't. I mean, this, well, what's, no. what's, what's happening since the election is effectively a slow-motion, protracted version of Black Wednesday in 1992, a, a just seismic, spectacular collapse in credibility. But this is happening over a number of days and even weeks. Um, I think the one thing that explains this is they thought Jeremy Corbyn was a joke, They thought there is no way that Jeremy Corbyn can ever be electable. Massive complacency. And and even so, that's why they put that stuff in the manifesto. And then they had the the arrogance not even to do a U turn properly. They left as many questions unanswered with the U turn as they did with the initial mistake. And that's the extraordinary thing. And one thing they've given not just just Labour critics in the Labour Party, Uh, of Jeremy Corbyn, and Tories and pundits and commentators have always had one big thing against Jeremy Corbyn, that he is not credible as a prime minister. That is not true anymore. That is not true anymore. Whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn, he is very credible as Britain's next prime minister. And I think that is is the way in which the world has now changed in just three or four days.
3: He's credible in the sense that, he may, he may win an overall majority in, in the next election, which no, wasn't you something... May dis-
2: you may, I know you did yeah. disagree with a lot of what he says, and you're not a natural fellow traveller, I understand that. However, yeah. he is credible from a numbers point of view, and from a momentum point of view, no pun intended, uh, is entirely plausible he will be Britain's next Prime Minister. OK. Matt. Thank you very much for coming in. Matt Zarb-Cousin, sorry. I was, just, uh, I was just letting that got last... That, that that, way I got carried you away with the last sentence there. Uh, good night. Um, no, Matt Zarb-Cousin, thanks so much for coming in. Um, can, you, can we start by talking about Corbynism? Is there such a thing as Corbynism? And how would you... What's the essence of it for, a, for someone like you, who's a, who's a fan and a fellow traveller?
4: Well, I think uh, it's predicated on the notion that since the financial crisis, the world has now changed and what was the economic status quo is not delivering for a lot of people. It's uh, left a lot of people behind. It's led to years of underinvestment, um, And that's why people voted, I think, a, lo- a lot of people voted for Brexit because they wanted a change. They wanted a departure from the status quo. And the Labour membership recognised after 2015 that we did need to break from the past. We really needed to properly break from what was the new Labour kind of Thatcherite economic consensus however you want to characterise it, neoliberalism. And that's why they voted for Jeremy Corbyn. And that's why they voted for Jeremy Corbyn the second time around. And where people have misunderstood Corbynism is they have sort of characterised it as if as if it's a, some kind of 1970s 70s throwback, as if it's a old-style state socialism. Mm-hmm. What it actually is, is appealing to people who have been left behind by the current system. For example, young people. The reason it appeals to young people a lot is not because young people are all, you know, hard left. It's because they're not getting the same things from the system that their parents got. It's a system that's no longer working. All young people want is a secure job, housing, uh and, you know, rights and good wages, all the things that their parents same had. Same stuff
3: everyone wants. Actually, yeah.
4: it's actually, you look at it from that perspective, this is a uh, kind of socially conservative almost you know it, it's not no no it's not it's not radical and that's when that's why when people the manifesto came out what it was trying to address was you know ha- the the problems that have been created in the last 20 years so we can go back to giving every giving everyone an opportunity and everyone can get on in life it's not kind of trying to turn britain into a socialist state you know, or you know hard left radical socialist state what we want is for everyone to have a good life and this you know there's obviously problems with the system and i think people voted for brexit as i said for that reason
3: that's what struck me about the manifesto that it's not radical um it, it might seem radical in contrast to the tory manifesto but you know um it is a fairly re- recognizable kind of social democratic labor soft left kind of collection of policies right
2: that's well i liked it
3: um, and and that, the, but what it, it combines that with the radical sounding rhetoric or the kind of outsider sounding rhetoric of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, which kind of makes it more, more powerful. Um, but would, would you agree with that, broadly speaking, that, that kind of analysis?
4: So, so, whereas New Labour recognised that the economic status quo of Thatcherism was working for a lot of people, uh, and therefore they had to accept that, they had to predicate everything on, on, on those assumptions. The Corbyn project recognises that the economic status quo is not working for people, and therefore we need a transformational approach. We need to have something that's going to actually change the system. We need to offer that to the public. And the pro- is it, is it
3: transformation? I mean, are you saying it is radical or it's... Or it, is it transforming the it's, system or is it making the system work better? It's
4: transforming the system so it can deliver things that aren't radical. They're just things that we... Necessities, things that we, our parents took for granted. And that's, that's, you know, that's the, as I say, you know, the, the Conservatives recognised. I think the Conservatives in this election, they wanted to fight over Brexit. They saw the, after the referendum result, they saw that the, that UKIP vote was going to collapse and there'd be a pool of voters that they could tap into. And what they didn't do was recognise why people voted for Brexit. Because if they had done that, they would have offered transformational policies to people. They would have offered, they would recognise people didn't like the system. But instead they tried to fight an election over a false premise, really, that there was some kind of obstruction to carrying out the, the will of the referendum.
2: Well they made the mistake of thinking that the Brexit vote was actually about Europe.
4: <laughs> yes. Which it is
2: for some, but for a lot of people, it was just two fingers up at the way that politics is usually done. And at this election, two fingers up went to Theresa May, because Jeremy's the anti-establishment character. But but do you think that the public do you think that the Jeremy's performance in this election represents the public cottoning on to what you're saying, Matt, that actually this is not a hard left agenda at all, but it's a sort of, you know, let's make the system work, plea to the ether. Is that? Do you think that's why he did so well? Because that message has rippled way away from the left across to mainstream Britain?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the public are much more likely to give someone a hearing who wants to change the system and who wants to do things differently if they're struggling to make ends meet, if they're struggling to, to get on and get by and uh that's why he got a hearing and particularly from young people and i don't think the public looks at things in left or right by the way and i think that there's a lot of things that can now circumvent any kind of tabloid narrative about a political party leader and if anything i think it kind of makes people suspicious of what their agenda is if it beca- if it's so relentless it just becomes it just doesn't become credible and then Obviously they can see for himself on for themselves, you know, when he takes part in the BBC question time debates and and whatever, mm. that he's not this mad person they're trying to caricature him as.
2: What do you think? Why do you think um newspapers, commentary at pundits, a lot of all of us got it so spectacularly wrong, didn't didn't think Jeremy could pull off this kind of result. Again, he didn't win, but he did it, you know, very well for someone he lost. But what, what, what's the reason that there was just this incapacity to consider the possibility that he might do so well? Do you think?
4: Because I think that lots of people in the commentary have a very outdated conception of politics that is based on, as I said before, like assumptions that were right in 1997, but not right anymore. And I think there is a lack of recognition. I don't know if it's because they're out of touch or uh, you know the, the, their lives are kind of insulated from the day-to-day kind of grind of, of ordinary people. But they seem to think that those assumptions still apply today.
2: What assumptions do you mean? What sorts of things?
4: That if you are going to win an election you have to accept this kind of uh neoliberal approach to economics. You can't be too left wing. You um you know the system works for most people. And I think that, that obviously that I, I don't understand why they haven't woken up to the fact that clearly doesn't, uh, you know, you just have to speak to people to know that they're not, you know, no one's doing particularly well, well at the moment. And the, we're still, I think the the impact of the financial crisis is still playing out.
3: Mm-hmm. This is a question for both of you. What, what in the Corbyn manifesto, um, particularly on economics, would not have got into a Miliband manifesto?
2: Well, I think a lot of the things in it we debated and then didn't do, if I'm honest, so there's a very explicit borrowing for infrastructure, 250 billion commitment, I think, which we were very nervous of because yeah. Ed, both Eds were rightly worried about our reputation on public spending, but they, but the, you know, the mood has moved on. I mean, similarly, you know, nationalisation of, of the grid, uh, water, that wouldn't have been in a Miliband manifesto as well. But it's not because Ed in his private moments hasn't got sympathy for that sort of agenda.
3: I don't want to know about Ed's private moments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, what, Matt, what do you think about that?
2: What about the, I think
4: correct me if I'm wrong, £10 an hour minimum wage, um, the £50 billion of revenue raising, £50 billion of spending on public services, yes. abolishing tuition fees, as you say, nationalisation of rail, all of these things are very popular policies. Mm. And I think there was a, um, a reluctance before to, because they all poll very well as individual yeah, policies, sure. and there's a reluctance to kind of accept that actually the sense of gravity uh, in politics has shifted. I think Ed actually recognised that, he he I think his narrative was, was correct when he said, um, the old rules don't apply, you know, the country's moved to the left. But I just think there was obviously an issue with articulating a coherent.
2: No, I think platform. I mean I think I think I think actually yeah, to be pat ourselves on the back a bit, we did yeah. sort of isolate the problems that you've sort of, you know, delivered delivered a manifesto on I think our manifesto fell short of the analysis, if I'm honest, back in twenty fifteen. Um What about I mean, there is a case that
3: the, the manifesto is not left wing enough, right? And um, talking specifically about the benefits freeze, on which Labour was not promising to reverse, right? Which probably has the biggest sort of impact in terms of redistribution. Well, uh, or anything else? So it, it yeah. ends up with you, you know you get a manifesto which is actually to the right of the Lib Dems when it comes to well, I mean it depends.
4: It kind of depends how you look at it. Look, they, they've said they put I think nine billion extra into benefits. But obviously, if you increase the minimum wage to ten pounds an hour, then you le- need less in work benefits. so i think I think it kind of levels itself out in some in some respects, but obviously they'd want to end the benefit freeze. I think Jeremy made that clear at the press conference for the manifesto. What
3: they about, want to, but they, it's not in the manifesto.
2: What about a lot of the things that um the Tories clearly were very, very? complacent about the ease with which they attacked Jeremy on some things that were entirely predictable, IRA connections, foreign policy, that kind of thing. I mean, what's... Why do you think the public didn't seem to care about those issues when the Tories clearly put so much effort into, or or so much stock in the idea that they would just deliver the goods for them?
4: Because I think that they'd been priced in by that point. I think people either didn't care about them or they had already factored them into their decision-making. And... I mean I'm not I'm not comparing Jeremy in any way to Donald Trump. But, but. what you, <laughs> However there there was a uh, um a sense among the electorate now and particularly across the western world that they just want someone to get in there and try and make things better. And all of this stuff about personality politics and what they might have done in their past and all this, you know, cuz Trump Donald Trump's track record was appalling, but he's now president of the United States, you know. Because he convinced people that he was capable of trying to make things better, or of, of making things better. So, because people are, I think, in a struggling at the moment with, with the way things are, that's what they want more than anything. They want someone who can, they can actually believe believe in who's going to try and deliver. I
3: agree. I, I mean, I also thought the the Corbyn played it well. I mean he used what I would characterise as a, a good Blairite tactic of attacking the Tories from the right and the left at the same time on terrorism, um, you know, by, by saying, that you haven't been spending enough on our security forces on the police, that's the problem then. Uh, you know, he neutralised at least that, that Also,
2: issue. he found an, austerity, an anti-austerity argument from the right against the Tories when it came to police numbers, which is an unusual yeah. thing to do, and it, and it obviously hit home with some people,
3: definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the, that is great. That's good political strategy, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
4: They also deserve a lot of credit for their political positioning on Brexit because it... I mean, it goes back to what we were saying about the commentariat. There was a lot of people who were shouting very loud about the Labour Party not being the real opposition because they didn't oppose Brexit. And I think we know now that if Jeremy had lost that leadership contest in September, I believe that if we had a leader if you know, we had a leader who wanted to try and oppose Brexit or obstruct Article 50, they would have called an election there and then. It would have been an election on whether or not Brexit gets implemented or carried out and Labour Party would have been finished. So I think, that, I think that that, that counter-historical yeah. uh, That's a very interesting narrative is, is, a, is actually quite important, particularly in the context of the pressure that we came under to try and uh, you know, block Brexit.
2: I think the other interesting thing about Brexit is you've got two parties, we've got a massive drift towards two-party voting in this election. Two parties do dominate the voting landscape. Both of them have accepted Brexit, and yet the result means Brexit is more in doubt than it was a week and a half ago. Uh, it's a sort of extraordinary situation, really. I just want to spend a few minutes to- talking
3: about um, the, uh, a sort of slightly unpleasant aspect of Corbynism, which is, well, that is associated with, with Corbynism, which is uh, a kind of culture of... Trolling and and aggressive abuse um, on social media. You see it again and again. You see it. You know the journalists get attacked, including people like the deputy editor of the New Statesman, Helen Lewis. Uh, You see it from uh, or or any, you know, Daniel Finkelstein at the Times. You read the responses they get to some of their tweets. It is absolutely appalling. I mean, the abuse that they get from people with you know. Corbyn icon next time is is really unpleasant and but I also think it's seeping into the kind of more mainstream uh corbyn kind of uh, rhetoric so you see Clive Lewis you know attack makes these kind of incredibly personal nasty attacks on on people um and you also see it in in some of the uh, the sort of corbynite supporters in the press as well um and I wanted to talk to Matt about this because <laughs> and uh, by the way i warned Matt that I'm going to do this um, the, uh, some of the tweets that he sent yesterday you went on a kind of um, you went around kind of being really angry at people um, I'm not angry so you know <laughs> okay good so <laughs> yeah, I'm going to read some of them out right yeah, and then, yeah, uh, which I know you're, you're fine with um, this is to you. Neil Wallace ha ha you absolute melt what are you <laughs> what are you apart from totally irrelevant uh, Chris dear, retire, was. you idiot. I, I will come yeah, back to you, yeah. I promise. Um, retire, you idiot. Put yourself out to pasture, your pal. You're a seen, you are seen as a supreme melt, and you also happen to be one. Take care and love to the family, <laughs> which is a bit dark. Um, and then in particular, there's this kind of... Uh, this approach you make to the producer of The Marr Show, where he said, you shouldn't be having Polly Toynbee. So he had three guests on the sofa. And one of them was Polly Toynbee. Hmm. And he says, she, you shouldn't be having Polly Polly is not relevant anymore. Better people available. BBC should recognize that. Yep. Um, Polly advocates a neoliberal centrism that's no longer relevant. Yep. Um, and then a female... Twitter said, is that what you think, older, well-respected, uh, older, well-respected women journalists, not relevant? Oh, that's, 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 a,
4: that's an absurd thing to say because... Okay, well, because, because, well your, your reply I'm, was, no, it's I, no
3: longer relevant.
4: Because I'm...
3: I'm yeah, will, honestly, I will get back to you. Consistently wrong and therefore discredited. Sorry, that's the game. No time for sentimental shit. So, well, first of all, what, what is the game?
4: Well, if you... If you want to be given a platform on the BBC or any, on any broadcaster, you, you should, I believe, that you should do so on the basis of your insight and your demonstrable understanding of the political context. Otherwise, you might as well go and get Pete from the pub to go on Newsnight. So there's no real point to have it. hearing these people's opinions. What Janan Ganesh calling Corbynistas thick as pig shit... That you know, this person has been completely discredited. It's been completely wrong. So I don't understand why I'm having to ha- listen to him. I pay my licence fee. Why am I listening to Janan Ganesh? It's completely pointless. The public is not served by these people. We have now moved on from the neoliberal context. We have now moved on from what were, as I said, the uh, the assumptions of the past. We, we there is there is a new context and there is a new game in town. There are good people out there. I resent what that person said about. Successful women, me me not being condescending to successful women. I, I wanted Ellie May O'Hagan on Mar, and thankfully she's going on next Sunday. Someone who actually understands what's going on in politics now. So I can't, I'm not going to like sit here and justify, you know, what my views are. You know, I'm not going to sit here, sorry, I'm not going to sit here and justify uh, uh, my language when I've been com- routinely uh, abu- abused by people on the right of the Labour Party, it's like Paul Richards, Andrew Spooner, you know, these people are just trolls, right? So if the left gives it back and if the left stands up for itself, for some reason that's not okay. So there is a, you know, I think there is an inbuilt prejudice towards the left, not just, I mean, hopefully, I think we've we've come through that now in the Labour Party, but still, it still exists in the media. They're not giving the left a platform. We just won 40% of the vote. 12.8 million people voted for Jeremy Corbyn. It's time that the left is represented.
3: Okay. Now, and I I, I I see I, I understand that point. I, I just don't understand Well, A the kind of unpleasantness. I mean the the, the basic well, I, the, rule which is just, you know, don't be a dick. Which I don't always live by myself, by the way, but it's a good kind of good precept to live by. Well I, I um, think well, and, and the second one which is it's not just about the fact that, you know, successful women it, there's something about this. Put yourself out to pasture. Retire. Yeah. I mean, the one point me? to you was, was you that but, she's an older woman journalist. No,
4: the, the, that, I talk, and I said to say that in a way, Polly Toynbee like, is a neoliberal. I said that. I said that, to, I said that to Chris Deering, because Chris Deering has, for the last two years, You've has been. You've said it to a few people. Been, no, I've said to Chris Deering, he should retire because the last, the past two years, he has been condescending. He has been. He's completely written off the Corbyn project. He is told Owen that he's destroying the Labour Party, right? Well, you were wrong, mate. So wh- why should we listen to you?
2: It's one thing to say you're wrong, mate. I understand that. I think the thing I'm really worried about as a Labour person and someone interested in public debate is there's a kind of arms race now going. I think you're right that it's, it, it's not just people on the left who are associated with this sort of unpleasantness. But what we've got now is an arms race of unpleasantness between all sides in the debate. And I just want—I mean, if ever there is a moment to kind of call a truce on the sort of intra-labor, let alone you know intra-public debate debate sphere nastiness, this has got to be it, right? When Jeremy's been successful, relatively speaking, incredibly successful, defied expectations, there is a real high ground now, right? I, I would also isn't say this the just right moment? It's, in, it's,
3: strategically, it seems—you know—apart from the kind of the ethical question, right? strategically, is it wise to be telling people to, you know, that Polly Toynbee should not be listened to? I'm not saying that. Most of your I'm not, voters I'm
4: not saying that. Are, are her age. I'm not saying she shouldn't be listened to. I'm saying she shouldn't be given a platform on Ma, which is the best watched political program in the country.
3: Would I'm you sorry, say the same that's thing not, about Philip Collins? Because your tweets about Philip Collins are much more respectful. Like, because I Philip respect Collins Phil, came up to me. Like, you thi- retweet fi- him. Philip,
4: Philip, Philip, so what's the difference? Because Philip Collins came up to me at ITN and he apologised.
3: So Polly he hasn't apologised to you. This I'm not
4: asking for her to apologise to me. I, I don't think Phil Collins should be on on Mar either. To be honest, I don't understand why we can't. There's enough left commentators who understand what's going on to be given a platform on these programmes. I'm sorry, but we've moved on and everyone needs to get with the times. And I'm sorry that I'm the one who has to make this argument. But unfortunately that's where we are.
3: It falls to you. <laughs> okay. Um I think that we've we've explored that as thoroughly as we're going to.
2: Um So Matt, just a final question. Where does Corbyn and Corbinism go from here? I mean, I mean the critics think that maybe Jeremy's hit this high watermark with this election, you know. I hope that's not that's not true. But the question is What what does the next two or three months or six months look like for the Corbyn Project? Is it reaching out to other parties? Is it trying to rebuild relations within the party to have a sort of broader spectrum of people at the top of the party? What do you think the next steps are?
4: Well, I think I I understand um, what the reservations were within the Labour Party about the Corbyn Project. I completely get that. I mean, I'm not old enough to have lived through 1983, but I know that it probably lives long in the memory for a lot of people. And they could see what was happening um, and... They were very cautious about it. Uh, but I hope now that um, having got 40% of the vote, having got 12.8 million votes, that the party can get behind it and can understand now that, the, that what we're trying to do uh, is recognise that the context has changed and the rules have
2: changed. And do you, th- do you think there is an appetite amongst the senior people in Jeremy's team to actually reach out to people who, as you've said, for the last two years have been throwing bricks at him and you know, predicting electoral catastrophe under him?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, Jeremy's very conciliatory and uh, I don't think there's going to be any issues with working with anyone um, if that's what it comes to. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic about the Labour Party at the moment and I think that um, the, the general election is what was supposed to, you know, what was supposed to destroy the Labour Party if Theresa May got her way is actually unified it. I think we ran a fantastic campaign. I think uh, people recognised what, Jeremy's strengths were uh, in campaigning and in reaching those people, those young people, and in uh, galvanising key influencers who were able to you know, create viral content. Like the Loki video, I think was my favourite. It was the Loki, the, the rapper, the um, uh, the endorsement that he did that got 10 million views two weeks to go before the election. I mean, this is incredible. This unprecedented. We're we're in a situation now where you know the top 10 things that were shared on social media that were election related got about half a million shares each and they were all Labour, Labour content. And, you know, this, this is, this is very exciting. Um, and I mean, people did tend to kind of sneer at social media and the, the uh, that as being a viable means of, 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 getting votes and, and also the rallies. But I think the rallies were fantastic in that they, um, the optics legitimized support for Jeremy. If you go and do a rally, people are saying, "Oh, he's going to do a rally in a safe seat." but actually, if you go to do a rally in the north in the northwest, for example, somewhere in the northwest, even if it's a safe seat and you bring loads of people out onto the streets, it's going to be on northwest tonight. It's going to be on the local news and everyone in that area will see it. So, I think they did a very good job. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant job of uh, prioritizing those things.
3: Good. Thank you very much. It's fascinating. Matt Zarb Cousins. So we are now going to do rant or rave, uh, where we uh, either rant about something we don't like or rave about something we love. And uh, I've got a short rave. But before I do that, I'm going
2: to hand over to Stuart. I think you've got a rant. have well, got a short rant to go with your short rave. Um, so one of the interesting things about this election that we just had is that the media threw everything they could at Jeremy Corbyn. And I remember when I worked for Ed Miliband in 2015, when it looked like Ed might end up getting into Downing Street at some point, point. Um, one of the things that I think would have been sweetest about that victory had it happened uh, was that it would have shown that the combined weight of the Daily Mail, the Sun, Telegraph, and everyone else against Ed didn't work. Now, I think Jeremy Corbyn's people can take some gratification the fact that they have shown that the combined weight of the Mail, Sun, Telegraph wasn't enough to put Theresa May with this 20 point lead a month out into Downing Street with a decent majority, with any majority. Now, I'm not saying that that reflects a moment of a pivotal moment and that the sort of the end of the idea that the media determine elections. But I think what's, what the point I wanted to make is it's been a kind of false excuse for the left for too long that the media lose them elections. And my, my hope is that actually what this does is not. Uh, destroy, it may not destroy the the, the the influence of the media more generally, but I hope it makes the left less paranoid about the paralyzing influence of the media on their political fortunes. I think that's one thing that the Corbyn relative success can do for the left from now on.
3: Well, yeah, we can but hope. Um, I would add one, um, so now I've got two raves, I'm going to do one quick rave on the election um, because you just reminded me that one good thing, perhaps under-commented on, is how little effect the terrorist attacks had on the election, right? The whole aim, big part of the aim of those attacks was to disrupt the election democratic process. Zero impact, mm-hmm. absolutely zero impact um, either way. So um, congratulations, everybody, for for ignoring that um, politically. The the other rave I have is uh, a book. Um, it's called Lenin on the Train. Um, uh, I've just finished it. It's by Catherine Meridale. Um And it is, in essence, it's a history of, of the uh, outbreak of, of the Russian Revolution. Um, and it's, it's built around Lenin's journey from, from Switzerland um, into Russia uh, through Germany um, when he arrives at the fin- Finland station. So she tells that That's her kind of narrative structure, and then she kind of tells the whole story of what was happening around that around that journey absolutely brilliant piece of storytelling um, it's of course um, 100 years ago this year um, you're reminded actually of course there were two revolutions that year uh, the first revolution was sort of uh, inconclusive and uh, the the establishment basically kind of stayed in power but somewhat weakened um, and then later in the year uh, a man in a beard arrived on a train <laughs> and uh, overturned the whole system
2: was he sitting on the floor in between the cages? almost <laughs> <Yeah.
3: laughs> well, certainly um, that's all for this show, um, we will see you next time. Do remember to uh, rate us on iTunes and share us on social media. Thank you very much for listening. Hold
0: up.